Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited about this episode today with Kent Alterman, the president of original programming and content at Comedy Central. And this podcast was recorded live from Montreal in front of a, a live audience of between 50 and 100 people. And I was very excited because the festival, uh, Paul Ronka, and Bruce Hills invited me up there, and I was the only non-talent. That doesn't, that sounds pretty self-deprecating, but I was the only non-talent to come up and do a podcast, uh, and it was really wonderful. It was a great honor, and we had an amazing time, and the podcast that you're about to hear was fantastic, and Kent was incredibly inspirational. I want to tell you about the reason why I'm recording this pre-cold open to the cold open is because something happened beyond my control that was a little bit crazy. And what happened was is that we recorded it. It was wonderful. I had a backup video crew and audio crew as well recording. And when I got off stage, the person who was recording the podcast told me that he forgot to press the record button and we lost the opening introductions with the applause and all the banter and it was disappointing but I had the backup with the freelance group that was working with me there at the festival uh, a guy named Danny Menlo who's a great comedian and great producer and so I felt safe and then I recorded some more podcasts the next day with Danny 
and his crew. Everything was wonderful until the next day when Danny emailed me, letting me know that all of his equipment had been stolen. And so we lost the audio and video of Kent Alterman, now the backup audio of Kent Alterman, and the two podcasts that I'd recorded the day before. But many things are beyond our control, and as we learn, you go on and you do the best you can and figure out how to make things work. So here I am in my office recording this, uh, letting you know that you're about to hear something really special. Uh, Kent is an amazing man, and I know you're going to enjoy what you're about to hear. So without further ado, what you're about to hear now is the beginning of the Kent Alterman podcast in progress. And the setup to the cold open is the fact that I talked about when I first went up to the Montreal just for last festival and I started getting people in there right away, people like Dave Chappelle, and it was a really wonderful time. And then what you're about to hear is 20 years ago in 1994, uh, the first time when things didn't really go my way, similarly to the audio and video recording of these podcasts. So without further ado, please enjoy the interview with the president of content and original programming at Comedy Central, uh, the inspirational Kent Alterman. In the early 90s, what happened was I got the call that I was not getting anybody into the Just for Laughs Festival. I was shut out. And I couldn't believe it because I felt like I had a great relationship with them. They were buying the talent. And I could not accept the fact that I wasn't getting anybody in here. So I devised a plan uh, late at night. I decided I was going to bring them up here and take this town by storm. And uh, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I was going to do it. And uh, I told, I called Bruce Hills. I said, Bruce, listen, I want to do this thing. And he sort of laughed on the phone. He said, hey, Barry, do whatever you want. You know, we'd love to have you come. If you want to bring your people, do whatever you can. But we didn't get anybody into the festival. So I called Jimbo from the Comedy Works, which just closed three weeks ago, sadly. I can't believe it. Great club. He said he couldn't do something because he was doing something with the festival. And I called the Comedy Nest, the late Ernie Butler. And he gave me the shot to bring my people up unbelievably. I, I really couldn't believe it. So I called all the comedians that I represented, including Chappelle, Wanda Sykes, Jim Brewer, Tracy Morgan, all these comedians. And I, I said, I have this plan. I want to do this. They said, we're in. I said, all you have to do is pay for your airfare and a hotel, and I'm going to make this happen. I worked it out with Ernie, but there was no email back then. It was only a fax machine and phone calls. And so I stayed up all night uh, faxing invitations to industry as I set up a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday here at the festival, the Comedy Nest. Okay? I faxed all night. I called. I called everything I could do to get industry people in up until the last minute. And 250 industry people came to those shows. 250. And 
I got calls for all these meetings to take in Los Angeles at all these television studios and networks. But I was just one guy with one house I was renting and I, I had one car and these guys had nothing and they had to fly back out again. So I had to put them all up in the house on the floor of the house and we would take meetings and I'd have to block off like four hour meetings that Ken, can you imagine me asking you to take four hours and we're going to meet six people and the meetings would just be one after the other, Jim Brewer, then Tracy Morgan, then whatever it was. And it just was craziness. And at the end of the meetings, I got five development deals for my clients from that showcase, five development deals. And that year here at the festival, I'm not mistaken, there weren't any other development deals that came about. And so in a sense, in a way, although it was a roundabout way, I put on a, my own new faces sort of before there were new faces. And after that, I remember Bruce Hills coming to Los Angeles and asking me if he could meet with me. And I said, I'd love to meet with you. And he said, Barry, it was really great what you did. I thought it was really impressive how you did it. You got all the industry people there. It was great. Listen, uh, I was wondering if I could ask you a favor. And I said, absolutely. What is it? He said, um, can you never do that again? And I said, of course, I don't have to do it ever again. I, I, I love this festival. I just, you told me that I could do it and you gave me the go ahead. And he said, well, yeah, I just, I just didn't know that it would be, I just didn't know it would be as big as it was. And it was really, really impressive. And you did it and we trust your eye and and for, and ever since then, I've always been able to, the festival's always been great to me. They've always been great to me, even that year, to get people in. And where I want to relate to Kent, besides the story of starting from zero, zero, is that year later, I believe, or it was either the year earlier, I had come up here with Chappelle when he was a young kid, and I was relatively new manager, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And we got the directions, and there were two people who were doing the directions for the Just for Laughs Festival. Debbie Siegel, who's now married to Gabe Sachs, and Maureen Taron, who's now manager. And everything went wrong. Every single thing went wrong with the trip. The ticket was wrong. The flight was wrong. Everything. And we got the, the car service. The van didn't pick us up. We got here. And yet, I'm a very calm person. And Chappelle, uh, if you don't know him or if you've ever met him, Although, despite what people say now, one of the nicest, sweetest, amazing men I've ever met in my life. And when we got there, you'd think that we would be stressed out and angry, but we were very calm. And uh, Debbie Siegel and Maureen Terrence said, it's unbelievable. You're so calm. We fucked everything up. I mean, we're so sorry. How is it possible that you could be this calm and whatever? I said, well, this is just the way we are. And I just, as I was leaving, I said, what do you do when somebody comes up here and they're an asshole and they're mean to you or they treat you poorly, how do you handle that? Because you're the face of this company. You have to make sure that people know that they feel safe when they come to this table. She says, we have our ways. And I said, well, what do you do when somebody's an asshole? She said, you see that guy over there? I said, yeah, yeah, I see him. You see that name tag that he has hanging from his uh, neck yeah she says look closely 
for everyone we don't like, we take the cord of the name tag and we make it twice as short. And then we punch the hole off to the side so the name tag goes diagonal like that. So when everybody in the festival who works here walks around, we know who the assholes are. I'm getting nervous how this relates to me. (laughs) (laughs) So in relation to my guest, Kent Alterman, today, who I've known probably my whole career, he's working at a company where every single person that is there when you walk in is wonderful. Every single person makes you feel like a million bucks. Every single person treats talent like they're gold. And after I met with Kent recently and I pitched him a show with a new group of executives that he brought on, I emailed Doug Herzog, who's the president of the Viacom Entertainment Group who oversees Comedy Central and uh, Spike and TV Land. And I said, Doug, I'm just blown away. I just had a pitch meeting with Kent and his new team, and they're just really amazing. And he emailed me back, Barry, we have a no-asshole policy here at Comedy Central. And the reason I say that to all of you out here tonight is the fact is is that you all know somebody out there who has a sense of entitlement, who's done something that isn't right, that treats people poorly, that tweets out the wrong thing, that goes into a situation and gets in their own way and complicates winning. So if I had any message today relating to my guest, Kent Alterman, it's the fact that the way he runs his business and the way he runs his life and his team, he doesn't complicate winning. It's stress-free. He's a wonderful man, and he's an example to everybody in the business. If you want to win, treat people right, and the world will treat you right. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. 
I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just, I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I, I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A. and he said, you know, I got to meet you. So I met the guy and uh, I sat down. And he told me that 10 years ago, he created a company called Global Cash Card, where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued. So I went online and I did some research and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or 135 k a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor, go to globalcashcard.com, schedule a live demo on their system, Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. Just to let you know about this man sitting next to me, Kent Alterman is the president of content development and original programming at Comedy Central and oversees the development and production of all original content produced by the number one brand in comedy, Comedy Central. Since rejoining Comedy Central in 2010, he's developed, his development team has more than doubled the amount of original series on the air than at any other time in the history of the network. Uh, he's created bona fide franchises for Comedy Central with a broad mix of formats featuring some of the hottest new voices in comedy today, including... Workaholics, Key and Peel, Inside Amy Schumer, The Kroll Show, Brickleberry, Nathan for You, Drunk History, and most recently, Broad City and Review. Uh, Alterman also developed the social media sensation At Midnight, which extended Comedy Central's successful late night block to 90 minutes. He also leads the specials team in identifying and developing the next generation of comedy stars, which provide most of Comedy Central with this unbelievable roster of comedy talent, which is unmatched by any other network. He oversees the special event programming, such as the Emmy-nominated Comedy Central Roasts and the Night of Too Many Stars, which is their franchise benefit for autism, which is very rare for a network to do, by the way, as a side note, 
you'll rarely see a network do a franchise on one uh, particular situation because they're afraid to identify themselves with something, but they really believe in this cause, and it's uh, incredible what they do. Kent also oversees CC Studios, which is Comedy Central's in-house multi-platform playground where comedy and technology collide through multiple platforms. Uh, before his current position at Comedy Central, Alterman had an overall film deal at Fox Film Studios, and before that, he directed and executive produced New Line's feature film Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell, Woody Harrelson, and many, many other comedy stars. From 2001 to 2006, he served as executive vice president at New Line, overseeing a diverse slate of films, including The Motherlode, Elf, a great Oscar-nominated film, A History of Violence and Little Children. Alterman's first stint at Comedy Central, he served as head of New York development from 1996 to 2000, where he oversaw Strangers with Candy, Upright Citizens Brigade, and TV Funhouse. He started in his early career working with Michael Moore as a writer, director, and producer on the Emmy Award-winning series TV Nation, Please welcome my guest today, Kent Alterman. Thank you. All right. This is this is exciting, and you haven't said anything yet. <laughs> I haven't really... had to so far. <laughs> well, we'll try to we'll try to change that. Um, I normally like to start from the beginning, if you don't mind. So, because I think this is all about the journey, and people like to know how somebody got from one place to the other. So tell me about what you were doing, where you were, and what happened to you where your first inspiration came to you about being in the entertainment business. You know, where were you growing up, the family life, what was happening, and and how did it come about? Well, it took a long time for me to think that it was something I could do. Um, I always loved comedy and uh, entertainment and music, and uh, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. I think I was about two, two and a half. And my father put his finger out and said, told me to pull it. And I've really been hooked ever since. <laughs> um, but early influences were, uh, you know, I, I, uh, my parents had comedy records. They weren't big comedy people, but we, we had some comedy records that I loved. You know, Bill Cosby records and Bob Newhart things like that. And I really devoured those. And I used to uh, stay up and watch the tonight show every night religiously uh, at the foot of my parents' bed. They had a TV and uh, they would normally fall asleep and I would just uh, sit there and watch the rest of the show and then turn off the TV and go up to my room. Um, but, um, and then, you know, uh, you know, I think sketch shows like uh, SNL, you know, was a revelation and, um, I loved SCTV a lot when I was a kid and, um, you know, that was kind of where it started as far as, uh, I, but for some reason I never imagined that I just felt like it's something that other people do. And I never, I guess growing up in Texas, it just wasn't in my world to think that I could do it mostly cause I think I was probably an idiot and just didn't aim that way. And so what was the moment where you realized I should probably pursue this. What happened? Well, I went. I went to. Uh, I went to art school, and uh, I got a BFA in photography and graphic design. And I moved to New York and uh, started working in that world. And um, so I kind of inched my way into it in a way. Um, 
and I did some research after I was there for a while and had gotten kind of established and I found the top design firms in New York and which ones dealt with the inter- entertainment world at all. And so I wrote letters and you know was able to get an interview and so there was one that did a lot of uh entertainment marketing and on air promotion for HBO and Comedy Central and places like that. Uh, and some movie marketing, doing one sheet posters and trailers. And uh, I ended up getting a job there. And ultimately, I was put in charge of the entertainment side of their business in New York. And um, over time, I always had the impulse. I felt like, oh, I'm coming in at the 11th hour to help promote something. And I always had the impulse. I wish I was involved in developing and creating and producing it. And it felt like everything we were doing was sort of disposable, like the ultimate goal was to, if it was a printed piece in a garbage can or just forgotten as, you know, video or film. And uh, so then um, I kind of burned out on it and uh, I got together with some writer friends and started developing ideas to just try to go pitch to people I'd made contact with. Uh, And that's really kind of where it started. And so a lot of people don't know this about you, but you have like, in my opinion, one of the greatest senses of humor of any executive I've ever met. It's like you're, I always say to Kent that if he were a comedian, he would be like a headliner at Largo in Hollywood because you just have that great sense of humor that you can go either way. When you wrote those letters and when you were aggressive trying to get the job, did the letters have a little bit of sense of humor in them or were they just basic letters? Um, I honestly don't remember. Um, I, I I guess I was focusing more on just being persuasive, so probably there was a little humor in there. And so you get together with your friends and you're writing the stuff and you're going, are you pitching to people? Did anybody want to buy something that you, like, where did the relationship start? Well, I had met people who were, uh, sort of had similar jobs to what I have now at HBO. You know, I had lunch with Bridget Potter and of asked course. her for advice. And uh, the first project I did was at Comedy Central and I hadn't gotten to know them because the design firm I was in, um, we did after Ha and the Comedy Channel merged, we did Comedy Central's first image campaign. Um, and um, so I'd gotten to know them well. And so I had pitched a project that was about the election. I, I guess it was the 92 election. And uh, we were just doing these interstitial pieces as part of their, they were just starting to do, you know, um, indecision and campaign coverage yeah. and things like that. And so, and you and your two writers, or were there more than two? How many people were? Uh, well, I had a couple of friends I was just sort of developing different projects with. And cool. uh, that one, that one was with one, one other friend. So again, it's all about relationships. So you go in and I hope you don't mind me saying this, so I'll give you a big head, but you go in and any project you do, if you get a chance to do the first project ever that you've ever done before, which we're going to talk about a little later, you go in and no one has any expectations of you. No one actually believes that it's going to work. I mean, I know what you're saying. You as an artist believe that it's going to work. You hope that the network executive that greenlit it thinks it's going to work. But the fact is, is that there's a lineage of people before you who've, who've succeeded many, many more times, but they're giving you the shot to do it. So when you get your shot, whatever you do, and if there are comics out here or anything, if you're sending out a video link of yourself, make sure it's extraordinary. Because if it's not extraordinary, don't put it up 
Don't put it out anywhere. There's some in the crowd who I'm going to embarrass right now. Justin Willman, who is a magician, comedian. If you watch his content, you'll see every single thing he puts out is extraordinary. Every single thing he puts out is like, holy shit, I can't believe this. And if it's not right and he films it, he doesn't get it out there. Kent went to Comedy Central. He created this idea. He put it together. He got it on the air. And obviously, it was something that was special because it, the people at Comedy Central noticed. Somebody there noticed. People started. They, did, they didn't ask me back to do anything else, though, at that time. <laughs> well, I think they asked you back to be at the network twice uh, to do many, many different things. But the fact is, he did something that, that people noticed. And I think that's important that you need to be able to do that. So tell me what the next step was after that. What happened? Um, so I worked... Uh, at the comedy network known as Lifetime for a little while. <laughs> um, I, that was another place that we had done a lot of marketing for. I got to know the head of programming there, and she brought me in to kind of oversee this in-house development group. And it turned out to be uh, nothing came out of it. But uh, my first real break uh, came when some friends of mine uh, had a copy of the pilot that Michael Moore had done for TV Nation. And he had sold it to uh, NBC as a summer replacement series in BBC Two in the UK. And uh, they basically said to me, you know, we thought of you. It's like got your sensibility and it's a smart-ass comedic thing with political, you know, content. And um, But we don't really know what you would do on it because I really didn't have any career at that point. Um, so there was a woman who had been in that development group uh, who actually had done things like that. She had uh, been a producer and a director for, um, you know, news magazine shows. And so I called her and I, I said, hey, do you, you know, she had said to me, I love working with you. If we could ever work together again, it'd be great. And so I said, okay, here it is. Do you want to be partners? And we'll be, you know, producer, director, partners. Do you want to be partners? For, to pitch ourselves yeah. to this show. So I called, uh, I got, I had the number for Michael Moore's production office. I got his assistant on the phone and, uh, just talked as if I knew what, what I was talking about and said, Oh, I understand that Michael is meeting filmmakers and my partner and I want to come in and, you know, meet with him. And, and she just said, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. How about Tuesday at four <laughs> 30? So, um, so we had, you know, sat down and, uh, formulated a bunch of ideas to pitch to him. And I really loved the pilot. And, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, it was kind of a little bit of ahead of its time in some ways, maybe, but Could it, you talk a little bit about that because I think a lot of people don't know when it was really innovative. So, you know, Michael Moore's, uh, film, his documentary films, uh, at that time he had Roger and me was what put him on the map. This was the next thing he did. And basically it was a sort of, you know, 20, 20, 60 minutes kind of show, but each piece was a little short uh, Michael Moore film, basically, with him and other correspondents who would be on camera. So um, I don't know how much detail you want me no, to go into. I think into. it's important. We're here for the detail. Okay. All right. So um, there. So anyway, we went to the meeting, pitched a bunch of ideas. Just so you know, because people want it, because people don't, this is the thing that people don't understand. When you go to a pitch meeting, if any of you ever been to a pitch meeting, there's no evidence of anything. I was in a pitch meeting in your office. The only evidence is the three people he's with, him and me. Nobody knows what happened. We, I videotaped it. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Anyway, so uh, <laughs> basically I just talked to Michael about what I liked about the pilot and where I thought the series could go. And then I had developed maybe eight or ten ideas that I threw at him. And there was one in particular. I'd read an article in the New York Times about um, there was a court case in Jasper, Texas. And Texas is my home state, so it probably got my attention. Where uh, it, it's a town that had always been segregated. Not segregated. There were literally no blacks in this town. It was a really racist, hardcore town in eastern Texas. And uh, there was a housing development that was built where a judge ruled that to be to get federal funding – uh, it had to be integrated. So they moved a black family and, and then the clan, the local clan, kind of rallied around harassing them and protesting them and trying to keep them out. And so they got there was a court injunction where the clan people had to stay at least a thousand feet away from this housing development to not harass these people. So what did the clan do? They went to the whatever Department of Transportation or wherever where you, you know those adopt a highway programs. They adopted. They petitioned to adopt a two-mile stretch of highway that went along this housing development. So it was mired in the courts of who, whose, whose rights precede whose. Uh, so I pitched to Michael, like, well, let's go down there and see how good the Klan are at keeping the highways clean and how good they are <laughs> keeping their their sheets so white and you know all that. So he really loved that idea, and. Um, so yeah, th so basically, what happened in true industry standard fashion um, was he said, "Oh, I love, I love this idea. You totally get the show. We got to work this out. You need to meet with the show producer and the supervising producer next." So we had a meeting there, and basically the way they were set up is they had uh, a writing staff and then. Of filmmakers who were sort of the producer directors, they mostly came from documentary film. And uh, Jerry Kupfer, uh, who's gone on to do a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, most recently, he was the uh, show producer, the line producer for um, for um, Tina Fey's show, which for some weird reason I'm blanking on the name of right 30 now. Thirty Rock. Thank you. And um, anyway. Uh, he said, oh, well, we're, I'm not bringing in new people until we have two stories assigned because I don't want to um, have someone go off. It doesn't work out. They have to start over. And even if they shoot a piece, the second one's already developed and ready to go. So we just need to get your second piece uh, assigned, and then we're going to bring you in. And we worked out a deal and the whole thing. And so then uh, week after week would go by. They'd call us in for more meetings to talk about what the other piece might be. And, and it kind of dragged on forever. And uh, meanwhile, at a certain point, um, my producing partner uh, was getting worried this isn't ever going to happen. And she had an offer from Turner to, to uh, produce and direct a documentary for them. And she said, okay, if I don't know by Friday, I'm really sorry, but I'd rather do this, but I'm going to have to bail and so I was just pressuring, trying to keep, you know, I was getting really desperate. And, fi and finally Friday came along and she said, I'm really sorry. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think I could do this on my own? And she said, well, no. <laughs> and uh, I said, why not? And she said, well, you've never really directed before. And just in terms of, you know, and producing, scheduling how long to do interviews for and knowing how to shape the story and getting coverage when you're shooting and then... And she kind of just started talking through basically all the steps of what that job is. And nothing, even though I hadn't technically done them, uh, 
I, nothing felt like a foreign language. And I thought, well, what do I have to lose if it, but you know, just my own humility just by trying. So the next meeting I went to, I went by myself and, um, at one point, uh, Kathleen, the producer said, Oh, where's your partner? And I said, Oh, we don't always work together, uh, <laughs> which we really never really had. Uh, and she's doing a feature. So it's just me. And then I just kind of changed the subject and kept talking. And so at a certain point they had assigned an associate producer researcher to the clan piece and they, she started working on it. And then I got this paranoid feeling that, oh, they're so disorganized and they already have a staff of people there that are going out and shooting pieces. I know what's going to happen. They're just going to say, hey, can we give you some money for that idea? And we're just going to do it ourselves and keep moving. So I decided that I set my own deadline of a Friday. This is like weeks later. Uh, if I'm just going to show up on Monday. So I went to the office. I'd been there so much. I saw who was doing what and how they were organized. And I went to Jerry and I said, Hey, Kathleen told me to talk to you about getting a computer, uh, you know, place to sit, to start on the clan piece while they're getting my second story going. And then I went to Kathleen. I said, Hey, I'm assuming, you know, Jerry brought me in to get started on the clan piece <laughs> and said, I need to talk to you about getting a second piece. And it worked. They didn't really compare notes. And by the end of that first day, I had a second piece assigned. <laughs> so... <laughs> So basically what you're saying is the way to get where you're going right up front is to lie. I have a whole history of of getting jobs that I had no business getting. So I'm sure <laughs> being on this podcast is one of them. Um, no, that's incredible because I think that's what you have to do. You have to sort of manipulate and learn how to navigate without feeling like you're being dishonest. And, and, and you weren't dishonest. You're not a dishonest person. But in this business... Sometimes you have to pull out every stop you can to get where you want to go and make things happen because there's always, I, I say this sometimes, and you'll, you can agree or disagree, like in that pit where all those people were, where Kent was working, none of them wanted him to win. None of them wanted him to have the piece that was nominated for an Emmy Award. They wanted to be the ones that got it forward. So, so that you're, you're constant, but they're in the kitchenette area. They're saying, Hey buddy, how's your piece going? Good. What's happening? But I don't think that's totally true. You don't think that's true? No, I I've heard you say that before. You think they were all rooting for you? No, I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think that, you know, emotions can be complicated and I think that people can have mixed feelings too. And there is a lot of camaraderie. I mean, you know, in the comedy world, there's incredible collegial, supportive camaraderie. And there's also a lot of competition and, you know, other parts. And I don't think it's just one at the, I think they coexist in a way. So when you were, so getting on that theme, because I I love going toe to toe with you, because this is one of my favorite things, because uh, you always win. Um, (laughs) But like, you're there, it's delaying, it's delaying, it's delaying, delaying. Other people's pieces are going forward, going forward, going forward. Isn't that an indication, the reason why desperate times called for desperate measures for yeah. you? Because other people 
were not having a camaraderie. Other people were not helping to push your piece through. They were pushing their pieces Well, through. I think they were just busy doing their jobs. Like once I realized that they were already, you know, they had hired most of their staff before I had my first meeting with Michael. So, but when I realized that they were already out in production shooting pieces, that's when I got nervous. And I had already been working on that clan piece on some level because I was engaged with that associate producer who was doing research and she would call me and ask me what she wanted me to be doing. <laughs> and I was pretending to know. Um, and so I felt like in a way I already had started working there a little bit. I just knew that it could tip the other way and they would just take it from here kind of. And so then what was the next thing that happened? How did you get it all together and how did you make it such a well, successful piece? Uh, basically what happened was, I guess what I learned was a, I, I knew more than I probably gave myself credit for knowing just from even being in that design production world. I learned a lot about production and, uh, and the other is the old adage of just trusting your instincts. So basically what happened is I, the more research I did on the piece, uh, it really developed into a bigger piece. And it wasn't just about that highway thing. It turned out that um, when David Duke left being sort of the leader of the Klan to go into, quote, legitimate politics in Louisiana, his number two was this guy named Tom Robb. Who, who was based in Arkansas and he fashioned himself to be kind of a, a, you know, marketing PR genius. And he basically started recrafting the clan to be, you know, a kinder, gentler hate group. And, <laughs> and, and, um, his whole thing was like, we don't hate anyone. We don't hate blacks or Jews. We just are celebrating our white heritage. And so he started, you know, um, like I said, just being a politically correct sort of hate group. And, and, um, and so the piece really evolved to a bigger thing. So when I sat down with Michael and the writers before going to shoot it, um, you know, he said, oh, you took a really good idea and you made it bigger. Like, now go get it. And then uh, once I was out there, you know, it was intimidating. But uh, I basically, again, just followed my instincts of like while I was in the field shooting, I was constantly in my head editing the piece, trying to imagine where it's going to go and what else I needed. And then I'd sometimes call Adrian, who was the AP in New York, and say, try to get a contact with the mayor's office in Harrison. I want to interview the mayor. And and then it was a matter of just convincing people to go on camera, people who – and you know, this is in some ways how this show is ahead of its time. I was able to convince people that there's no way they didn't know it wasn't in their best interest to go on TV – uh, but I was somehow that allure of people being on TV. You know, it's like when I first told, had that first meeting with Michael, I said, I can't believe NBC is giving you this show. And his response was, oh, you'd be surprised how often people will give you the rope they use to hang themselves with. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, um, so I got lucky. The piece came together. I went back to New York. Uh, I did. I sat down with an editor again. New experience for me. Do you want me to be in the room, or do you want? You know? And I basically mapped out the outline for the piece, and then let her cut a rough cut together. And then we started. And we had a great collaboration. We started shaping it. The first time we showed a rough cut to Michael, um, he had. He said, "Oh, you got it." He had two little notes, and I got lucky because. That was maybe one of the only times a piece went through that. It was just dumb luck that it was my first one. And so then he trusted me. And so then, you know, I, I was with him for two. We did a few incarnations of that show. I went to Fox the next year and we did a year in special. So that I learned so much in that job um, 
you know, on all aspects of, of really of everything of putting things together. And I really got facile in the edit room because, uh, those pieces are really created in the edit room. And the second year he made me senior producer to help oversee development. And, and, the, and then after, uh, pieces would come back to go into the edit room and, you know, try to help shape them and all that. And again, a great example again of what to do and how to do it when you go into a job and you say it's dumb luck. Again, I'm sorry to disagree with you, but I don't think it's dumb luck. It's it's your talent, your hard work and your persistence and going into something that you don't know what it is and studying how to get there and how to do it right and making it work. And then once you deliver the piece... Michael felt safe with you. And I'm not saying you didn't feel safe with other producers, but I'm sure from year to year, some people fell off the map and some people moved up and you moved up because of your work ethic and how you put together a piece. And that was, you wouldn't let anybody see. I don't believe you would let him see it unless it was extraordinary. And that hence the two notes, which is exciting. Well, yeah, I felt good about it when I showed it to him. Definitely. Absolutely. So tell me, what your next step into the business was? Was it right to Comedy Central, some kind uh, of job? Not directly. So uh, there was another writer and a correspondent on that show named Louis Theroux, and he and I, he was the correspondent, in fact, on that clan piece. Um, by the way, just one side note about making a difference. There's uh, an organization in Alabama called Clan Watch. It's part of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And that was that and the ADL were the main two places I got a lot of my initial research from. And they did a newsletter after that piece aired that, um, you know, this whole, you know, up until that time, the Klan was pretty regionalized and factionalized. And Tom Robb was the one who sort of coalesced it into this bigger national organization. And uh, it turned out that the people that he was basically saying that he's not racist and trying to make it more, you know, okay to be part of the Klan and celebrate your heritage – were turned off to the hypocrisy that we exposed. And the people that were more radical that didn't like the idea that he dealt with the media, they all, it all, the whole thing splintered apart. And it went back to being these little smaller regional, you know, factionalized. So that was really gratifying to see that you could actually make a difference on something like that. Wow. Anyway, side note. That's, that's so great. I went, uh, I went, Louie and I went to Comedy Central's right after Doug Herzog and Eileen Katz had come in and we were pitching a show. Um, this isn't around the year 2000. D- no, uh, it was in, in 96. 96. And um, we were pitching a show uh, and they were considering it, but they were just starting to develop the Daily Show at the time. They were in, in negotiations to buy rerun rights to TV Nation. And, you know, their resources were so limited that they had to be really smart about, you know, not doing too much in one area. So they said, well, we'll think about it, but it didn't seem likely. And then they offered me a job to come in and, um, you know, be a development person. And it was small enough at that time. They said, you can really sort of run your own shows and be the executive producer of them. And I said, well, I'd rather you buy the show. So while they were thinking about it, I did go off and do a couple of other projects. I um, produced and directed a pilot at MTV and I produced this year end special on CBS. And then sort of checked back in and that show wasn't going to happen and they again said, why don't you come in? And so I took that job. I thought this is going to be a good next step to learn and grow and so forth. Well, it's also rare if you're an executive, for those of you who don't know, is to to get a job as an executive at a, at a network and also be able to be given the credit of executive producer on a show. 
normally what you'll see is a credit that says executive in charge of production for somebody who would love to have that credit. But it is very rare for somebody who had a network to get the executive producer credit. So like I said, it was a different time at Comedy Central than it was much smaller. And they really wanted me, I think, you know, to to really, uh, you know, develop and then oversee the shows like Strangers with Candy and Upright Citizens Brigade. They didn't have have showrunners. I was the showrunner de facto. And, and, uh, and it was, you know, I, I did not know that. So you, you ran the shows as well and you had to be at your desk in the office. Doing yeah. It. it got pretty crazy because I don't think that that's necessarily the way someone approached that job. Like I do have a tendency to be more hands-on and creatively driven. And so, um, it was I was it was slightly schizophrenic to be sort of this development person, but also to always be down at the production office, you know. And in fact, at a certain point, Eileen called me into her office and she said, uh, "You, because I hated going to sort of more, you know, meetings, like corporate meetings or whatever." And and uh, so she called me into her office and she said, "You know, I feel like you're running your own little production boutique here." And, you know, I thought, and the problem with that is, you know, so I had to make more concerted effort to start going to meetings with other departments and all that sort of thing. And, you know, look, like I said, Comedy Central was much smaller then. It was a totally different animal. We could never function that way now. How did you get to the point where you walk into Comedy Central, you've just been a senior producer on TV Nation, and Doug Herzog, who's overseeing everything now, who you work with now, said, hey, uh, you're my guy for running. I mean, he's there. He has to report to people with nicer suits who are looking at the bottom line. Well, nothing happens like in, everything in a moment. It's all, you know, evolution and steps and all that. So what my you- job was really to start finding, you know, talent and material and things and developing them. And... um and, you know, there was, you know, there was a line producer on those shows. There just wasn't a creative producer. And in both cases, well, you know, in the case of the UCB, well, I'd say in all of those cases, that was working with people who really, they were the showrunners. They were the creators, the producers, the writers, the performers, um, you know, in, in, in both those cases, Upright Citizens Brigade and Strangers with Candy. Uh, the Strangers crew had a little more experience because they had done Exit 57. That's uh, Amy Sedaris and Colbert, Stephen Colbert and Paul Donello, uh, who did Strangers. So it wasn't the same as being uh, what we would think of as a showrunner who was just there 24-7. You know, I was just really steering them and guiding them. And so those things become hits for the network early on. They're very well received. So what happens next for you there? Like, how does it, how do you, what's your next step at the network? Um, you know, I was there four years and, uh, the, you know, I, I, I did a combination of things that worked and things that didn't work. You know, I, I did a lot of failed, uh, pilots with some really talented people. I did one with Louis CK, David Tell, um, you know, tried to do one with Chappelle. Chappelle came in and pitched, two ideas to me that I bought. One was um, what became the Chappelle show. At the time, it was more of an anthology show and where he would do a character and each week it would be, you know, a a half hour. And the one he pitched uh, was the the blind uh, white supremacist. 
which became part of his show. And then he also pitched a special, a thematic special, uh, where he was going to break the record for the longest continuous stand up. It was like 24 hours on New Year's Eve. And um, I said yes to both. And then we ended up never quite, it just sort of, you know, maybe as a, a, a foreshadowing of what was to come, <laughs> he, we never quite consummated that. But um, anyway, so then uh, the last pilot I did was that got picked up for series was TV Funhouse with Robert Smigel. And then, um, you know, actually you, you brought up Doug a couple of times and how does that happen? What's great about Doug is that he is a really great leader in the sense of being smart and focused and sets direction and everything else. But he really empowers the people under him to really do their jobs. And he just is more supportive than he is overbearing and at all. And the no asshole policy is absolutely true. And that all comes from him. And, um, so, you know, I, I was given opportunity because of all that. Doug had left to go run Fox and I started wondering whether it was going to be as fun to be there and I was sort of getting itchy. So I ultimately uh, decided not to renew my contract and I moved to, I thought, okay, now it's time to move to LA. Got it. And uh, just to go back to something you said, uh, if there are artists listening uh, or here, you heard what he said, Louis CK, Dave Attell, Dave Chappelle, all of them failed early on. Every single one of them went in and got their head handed to them. Uh, Chappelle, you know, accepted the uh, the shows that you did, but before that, he was getting killed when he was pitching shows to Disney. And I know this for a fact because we did seven pilots in eight years, and every single one of them didn't go. So, I mean, there's things that happen that that shape you as an artist or a businessman or businesswoman, and um, and that's just a great example of that because all of them are, all three of those guys are the most respected comics that you could ever imagine now in the game. So, And they may not have felt like they failed, but, you know, Comedy Central decided not to pick them up. So, Yeah, well, I mean, when somebody, when somebody who's writing the checks does not say, we want to write more checks... It's, it's for an artist, it's, it's bone crushing sometimes. No, definitely. So you go to LA and do you, how do you come about to get the job at New Line? Um, well, basically, uh, there was one thing in between. I don't even know if it's worth going into. No, everything's (laughs) worth going into. Uh, so did, this was during the, uh, so this is now 2000, the internet boom is happening. The dot com, you know, craziness. And um, comedy manager from Three Arts, Michael Rotenberg, called me and said, hey, you know, we're doing this thing called Z.com and we really need, they had already started, we really need a creative head of it. And um, would you f- come out and sit down with Brad Gray? He's, you know, it was the main person. And um, this was a joint venture between Brillstein Gray, I believe, and uh, Three Arts called and a few Z.com. Others. And- yeah, Idea Lab was yeah. the company that really fueled it. It was an internet company. Anyway, so I uh, came out and met with Brad and because uh, I knew him but not that well. And uh, this could be a really long, boring story. But basically, uh, I went back to L.A. I told Brad, I, you know, 
I really don't get it. You know, that these are, this is what I think. I was just honest. And he said, I totally appreciate you being honest and don't make any decision. Let's keep talking. And, and then he did the Brad Grace seduction on me over time <laughs> where I didn't, I couldn't refuse. But, and so I thought, oh, okay, is there any downside to me doing this? I'm ready to go to LA. They're going to pay for me to go there. They made a great deal for me. I thought best case scenario, they are right and they really know something I don't and I'm going to just get, you know, rich in 20 minutes or it doesn't work. And, you know, this is the thing that got me out to LA and is there a downside? The, the scenario that I didn't contemplate, which shows really how idiotic I was, is when does the best case or the worst case scenario ever happen? You know, I forgot to contemplate the middle case scenario, which is like doing the job. <laughs> and um, so at the time I informed Comedy Central because I was in discussions about doing a new deal and okay, now I'm going to go to LA. And then uh, I think we, we were already done with, uh, with which was a year ahead with uh, Upright Citizens Brigade, but we were just about to start the third season of Strangers and Amy, Stephen and Paul said, you know, we really uh, don't want to do this without you. And is there any way we could figure it out? Now, I'm sure they would have done it without me, but um, but Comedy Central was great. They said, okay, I was able to leave my job, but then they just did a separate deal for me to be executive producer and run the show. And then Brad and the people in L.A. were really accommodating and said, come in the fall instead of the spring. And uh, long story short, uh, the bubble burst. By the time I came out, it was already bursting, and so I felt liberated basically. Mm -hmm. And then I just took some time off and I was, you know, doing some writing and traveling and just, I just, I, I had really been burned out by then too for a while. So I took some time off. I kept, when I got calls, mostly for TV things, uh, I just said, no, I got offered to, you know, come be executive producer of a pilot or this and that. And, um, I just was really had had a conviction that I wanted to take some time. So I was a little paranoid that the phone would stop ringing at a certain point. Anyway. Um, so Mike DeLuca left new line. Toby Emmerich was made president and he was looking for someone who knew comedy. And I guess my name came up a few times with different managers and agents. And one day Jimmy Miller, uh, comedy manager called and said, Hey, I just had lunch with Toby and the more he talked about what he's looking for, he wants a hands-on creative person that knows the comedy world and he doesn't want to just get a film exec. I felt like he's describing you, you guys should meet. So I met with Toby and that's what led uh, to that job. And again, relationships. And it's all about these relationships that happen. And, and behind the scenes there, uh, Kent and I were talking about something that I, I'm always uh, blown away by him because... I think one of the things, I, I, like I, I consider you an artist. I, I don't consider you. I consider you more an artist than an executive because I've always felt that you had that ability to do anything in both things. And and when you think about it, you you were creating field pieces. You were writing and directing these 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 short pieces for, and then you were pitching shows to people to executives on the other side. Then you become an executive on the other side and you're taking the pitches. Then in the middle of that, you're going to sets and executive producing shows. 
And then you go to New Line, and now it's films, and they're asking you to put together movies and create, get creative things together and find scripts. And the people that that seen your work, like Jimmy Miller, who believe in you, recommend you, and it just keeps going and going like that. And one of the most amazing things in your present job and now is it's it's like I look at semi pro. For those of you who don't know, again I said in the intro, Kent directed this film he never directed a feature film before he's working at the studio his job at the studio i i perceive when you got the job they didn't hire you and bring you in and said you know we want you to direct a feature film for us they wanted you to be the guy to put things together which you did put so many great things together but then you decided that you could direct and you wanted to direct and you had to sit down with will ferrell and Say, hey, I'm your guy for directing this film when there's 10 other guys who've directed 10 other films and you convinced Will Ferrell that you were the guy to do it and you'd never done it before. And and Will Ferrell's manager, Jimmy Miller. And it's all about these relationships and people believing in your work. And, and I think it's you're the to me and I know I, I, I'm embarrassed. I don't mean embarrassing, but you're the example for any artist or anybody who, you know, never just stick and do one thing. You can, you can do anything. You have so many different talents that you can do, but you have to share with the audience, like how do you go from putting these, these films together, which some of them were nominated for Academy Awards and you walk in the office one day and you say, you know what? I, I, I'm, I want to direct a comedy film now. Uh, could you give me the keys to the kingdom? How, how did that happen? Well, that's a great story, but it's not how it happened at all, actually. Okay. Um, because as I said earlier, nothing happens like in a vacuum all at once. You know, it's a process, right? So b- basically my sort of, uh, you know, career at New Line, um, the first project I did was Elf. Um, and, uh, and that came about, Toby had in a development meeting said, you know, gave an assignment next week, come in with, uh, people that we're not in business with that we should be, whether you, someone that people forgot about or emerging talent or whatever. And the two people I had on my list were Will Farrell and Steve Carell. And I had met Will pretty briefly, but when he was on SNL, he had done an episode of strangers. He was the guest star in one episode. So I met him then. And Steve Carell, you know, was a correspondent on The Daily Show, and I got to know him in particular when we spent some time in New Hampshire during one of the election, you know, primaries, uh, and we hit it off. And so, uh, you know, Will had been been on SNL. He hadn't done any films yet except the SNL movies, you know, like Night at the Roxbury. He hadn't done Old School yet or Anchorman or anything. And Carell, no one knew who he was, and so that was kind of a non-starter. And, um, so back to your relationships. So someone, one of my colleagues named Kale Boyder came up to me after this meeting and said, I love Will Ferrell. (laughs) Can I work with you on bread? Let's find some, you know? And, and, uh, so Kale, you know, grew up in new line and really knew every script out there. And he showed me, he said, here's four scripts you should read. And one of them was, um, the, the, uh, spec script, uh, called elf. And, um, I thought, oh, this, this is the one. It's a perfect premise for what Will does comedically, playing this very sincere guy who in, unintentionally wreaks havoc around him. And so I called Jimmy and I, I said, hey. Jimmy Miller. Yeah, I said, uh, you know, and I knew that Julie, um, now um, Julie Darmody. Julie Wixon and Julie now Wixon Julie Darmody. Darmody. 
uh, when Will's other manager. She was she was already aware of this script and she really liked it for Will. And um, so basically, I said, "Let's have a meeting and talk about it. If Will's interested, I'll, I'm going to acquire this script. Otherwise, I'm not. I just see this for Will." So we had a meeting and Will sparked to it and we got together. And um, so then, you know, you learn so much along the way. Like had I, I, I thought it would be obvious to any great comedy director that, um, that um, this is a home run, you know. And anyway, uh, so it was a long process uh, of getting that movie made. I had to go to the marketing and distribution people and really convince them like, you know, I think it was that year um, the second Santa Claus movie had come out. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure some people, obviously a lot of people loved it. It wasn't so much for me, but it made $140 million. And I thought, okay, these family Christmas movies, if they're half good. And I was naive, but I just told the marketing people, you know, hey, we're going to have 6'4 Will Ferrell in an elf costume on a poster. Who's not going to see that? But by the way, I think we can make it good, you know. So I got support to get it greenlit. Um, you'll appreciate this story. It, basically, um, that year was the second uh, the second Lord of the Rings trilogy was coming out at New Line. And they didn't want to do a, a Christmas movie that was going to compete with it. But the Santa Claus movies had opened like right around Thanksgiving, a little before Thanksgiving, and had a really great run before. And 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 these, so they backdated. Okay, here's the last date that we can greenlight this movie, and and have it happen for that release date. And of course, as everything in this business ever does, goes to the last minute or longer. And so on a Friday, that was the day. It was the do or die, do or day die, do or die day. Um, uh, about eleven thirty, Toby came into my office. He said, "Hey, Bob and Michael, Bob Bob Shea and Michael Lynn, uh, greenlit." They just said yes, and I was like, "Wow, that's great!" So about an hour later, I was coming out of the the men's room at the lobby of New Line, and Bob is going off to lunch, and I said, "Bob." Um, I just heard the news, you know, thank you. And I'm, I'm really excited. And I know this is going to be a good one. He's like, you really believe in this thing? And I said, I do. And I know it's not there, but we're going to get it there. And, uh, he said, well, you understand this, this budget, we got to make 65 fucking million dollars just to break even. And I actually had never really thought about that yet. I was just thinking about the movie. And so as I was shitting myself, I said, uh, I go, well, that's the business we're in gambling, right? And he goes, well, there's a fuck of a lot of difference between gambling and playing the lottery. <laughs> and so he got in the elevator, and as the elevator door started to close, he said, uh, I just want you to keep one thing in mind. And I said, what's that? And he goes, I'm holding you accountable for this, right as the door closed. <laughs> so that's how I launched into that project. And in some ways, New Line was analogous to the experience I had at Comedy Central. Depending on the project and who was involved, you could be pretty hands-on involved. And we also were given credits on our movies when we were doing that. And there, you know, the um, that script had come from, uh, you know, a writer David Barenbaum, who was part of this Disney program. He was not available to us because of the deal that he had. I don't know, remember exactly the details to work on it. But we, you know, optioned the script anyway. And, and his manager, a guy who's been very successful at Warner Brothers now named John Berg, um, 
was the only producer attached. And so, and John was great. You know, he said, look, I, I've never produced a movie. I know you're going to bring someone in. I just asked that I still be involved. And I said, of course, you know, I'm no reason to push you off. And so we met with several big producers and after the third one, Bob basically looked at me and said, what the fuck do I have you here for? Why do we need to bring on one of these guys? So, you know, that gave me an opportunity to really kind of get my hands dirty of sort of, you know, working with um, John and others on really sort of shepherding that movie through. So that I I got to know Will through that process and um New Line was interested in doing a sequel. We didn't have a deal, and it's kind of a long story. But basically, uh, New Line made a big, aggressive offer. There was an interest from Will to maybe develop it, and he was the one who said, I'd be interested in Kent. You know, I, I think he probably figured Favreau's already on to bigger and better, and who wants to do a sequel, you know? And so I, my name was sort of thrown out by by Will and Jimmy, you know, and so that's, um, in, that's incredible. That's yeah, a, it was really incredible. incredibly flattering. And, uh, we did develop it. It never kind of came, came to be. And over time, you know, again, as an executive, I was still trying to get more projects going. And so I thought, okay, we don't really have a lot of steam going on this. And so I called Jimmy and I said, you know, I don't get the sense Will's really totally committed to this, you know, are there, maybe there's other projects we should be doing again, just as an executive, try to get a Will Ferrell project going, not as anything to do with me being a director. And I said, what about that ABA project? Cause Scott Armstrong, who had done a lot of the great production rewriting on elf and had become a friend, he had pitched this project about doing a comedy about the old ABA. And he knew we had talked a lot. We're both big basketball fans and I'd grown up, uh, in San Antonio when the Spurs came in the old ABA days. And I didn't know if it would really be a real project, but I thought, well, I'd be damned if someone else is going to develop it. So I bought it. It was a one-line pitch, and it just was dormant for a while because everyone was busy on other things. So I asked Jimmy, what about that that ABA project? Because we had told Will about it, and he seemed in. He said, oh, yeah, he asked me about that every now and then. So basically... Um, you know, he said, do you have a script? No. And, uh, Will was shooting Talladega nights and he said, you should come down and meet with Will and try to get a script. So Scott was still living in New York, brought him out. Kale, Scott and I kind of hunkered down and really beat out the story. And then Scott would go madly writing. And so by the time that meeting came about, I think we had like 60 or 70 pages and Will, you know, read them early in the morning before shooting. We had breakfast. He was totally down for it. You know, he has an amazing work ethic. And, um, and so we got enough encouragement to keep going and we kept going. We turned in the script and then at a certain point, um, you know, I got a call from Jimmy, um, I think on a Wednesday, well, actually no, the Wednesday, my wife and I were, had been trying to have a baby for a while and it wasn't happening. And, um, so on a, on a Wednesday, I found out that she was pregnant, which was, you know, you know what that means. And, and then the next day I got the call from Jimmy, the due date for our baby was new year's Eve, which is also our anniversary. And, uh, the next day I got a call from Jimmy Will's Will's committing to it. He wants to do semi pro wants you to direct it. 
and uh, want to do it next. So it will start, you know, January 4th, whatever that Monday. And I thought, of course, these things that have been germinating for a while would happen at the same time. So that was a crazy, uh, crazy run. Wow. What a, what an incredible story. Now you, you mentioned Bob Newhart early on. I remember when I first went to see the movie Alf, I too, Bob Newhart was my inspiration for comedy, the button down mind of Bob Newhart, the driving instructor. And, and I never saw Bob in a film. And I would always said to myself, why is this guy had done like 350 episodes of television and he's never in a film. And I remember I went to see Elf. And again, I didn't know that you were involved or anything. But you had said early on that one of your main influences was Bob Newhart. Did you have any little part in getting Bob Newhart in the room to get that gig? Because when I saw him in that film, that movie like just meant the world to me. Well, you know, it, that one thing about all of, you know, film and TV, they are very um collaborative uh endeavors. And I it's probably safe to say that no one would really remember exactly whose idea was which, you know, but there was a lot of sharing of ideas about casting and uh that one obviously was yeah, close to my heart. Um and, I, you know, going back to the thing about being on both sides of the line, I do feel that because I've been sort of on the inside, the network networker studio side, and then also on the sort of writer, director, producer side, I do think that they make you better at any of them to have more understanding of the other side. And one, you know, my experience has always been that I've I feel like I've been able to prevail on getting stuff going that I really, that mean that I have passion for when I've been on the inside, it's much harder to get something going on the outside. And so I think that's part of what, you know, that appeal for me of taking that job at Comedy Central the first time, or, you know, what I did at New Line. So there's a lot of projects at New Line where I had to really fight to get people cast in things like Bob Newhart was not an obvious choice. But being on the inside, I think I probably had more influence to be able to prevail on something like that than had I been an outside producer. Absolutely. And he just, he was great in that movie. Yeah. Great. And the fact that, you know, it just, it's just, I'm speechless because it just, you just see the things that happen early on in your life and your influences. And then you have no idea that later on that you're going to be face to face with that person on a set with them. Well, meanwhile, for me, you know, I grew up, like I said, in the ABA and, uh, as a kid and, you know, it was a really fun, crazy time in the seventies. And, um, and to be able to take a lot of that experience and put it into the movie and then have people, not only like some of my comedy heroes and friends that I was able to get in the movie, but also, you know, I had a scene that was, it's in the director's cut, but it wasn't, it was cut out of the uh, theatrical version where uh, George Gervin, James Silas and artist Gilmore were pa- patrons in, in the uh, barbecue restaurant that, uh, that uh, uh, Andre Benjamin's uh, mom owned and he worked at, he was their waiter. And that was an incredible thrill or, you know, uh, while we were shooting Bill Walton, who was one of my like childhood heroes, um, he was working for ESPN at the time and he came to interview Will on set and he, um, 
we put him in 70s garb and gave him a big wig and all that. And he did what challenged Will to a one-on-one game. And then they sat down for an interview. And when he was in the director's chair, I mean, in the uh, makeup chair, I went in to introduce myself and we started talking. I told him about my history and he's like, oh, San Antonio, man, I remember those raucous fans. He goes, I remember one time, and this will be close to your heart as a Boston person. Uh, I remember one time when Dave Cowens went after the one of the baseline bums, which was this <laughs> group in San Antonio that was like this really drunk, raucous, still exists, but they moved him up off the baseline. And I, but then I, I, I said, uh, wait, you know what? That wasn't a baseline bum. That was me. He's like, what? And I said, yeah, because I was an obnoxious, smart-ass kid. I used to pick a player on the other team and just harass them and try to get under. And Dave Cowens, as you know, was such a hothead. And so one time I got, I made him snap and he took steps up into the stands and he's like, I'll fucking kill you. And it freaked me out. I didn't say another word that game. And, uh, but so I did the math in my head. I said, wait a minute, you didn't play for the Celtics yet when that happened. Why, why do you know that? And he said, Oh, are you kidding? He goes, at that time in the league, that was a sacred line that never had been crossed like that. Everyone in the league was talking about that. Nice. And here it was me, you know, this <laughs> idiot. So always making an impact. We have about uh, 15 minutes left probably. So talk about coming back to comedy central. It's always one of the things that you don't realize sometimes is when you're an executive is like jobs, you, you know, you, you can come into a certain job, but you realize when you come into the job that there's other people who have left the job that were that that somebody like Doug believed in he he bet on these people he brought them in he rallied around them for years and then for whatever reason the relationship ends and they leave and as an executive you have to come into a situation where you don't know what the morale is you don't know when like when you come in there's certain executives who stay And there are certain executives who are gone. And the executives that stay, you have to believe that in their mind, they're thinking to themselves, shit, man, he's going to be looking closely at me because I got to really do the job here. Because if I were him, most executives that come in clean everybody out. Some keep some, some don't. But you came into a situation where the network was, was doing well, obviously, but they wanted it to do better. And and there were expectations that were put on you. And, and I believe not, I mean, I'm sure nobody put the pressure on you right away, but did you feel like a sense like, oh my God, I'm replacing people who were my friends in the business. I'm coming in, there's people that are gone. And now I'm expected to exceed the level that they exceeded. Was that a lot of pressure or was that difficult or was that? Um, yeah, I mean, when Doug first approached me, uh, at first I, I, um, thought, oh, he's going to, I had heard some talk that there was going to be change coming and I thought, oh, he probably wants to see if I have any ideas for him. But he basically said, oh, I've met everyone in town. You, you need, you, this is your job, you know, and he kind of convinced me to do it. And we had a lot of discussions about where the network was, where was it right? Where was it wrong? And, and for me, it wasn't just about the content. It was also about, you know, the marketing and the look and the feel of the network I felt had gotten really tired and old. And, um, um, 
you know, I thought the way uh, business affairs made deals there, I thought was really, I had actually set up a project there after semi-pro and, and just you hear, you know, everyone talks about everything. And I felt like they just were in a bad way of nickel and diming and not doing things with the guilds and all, you know, there were just a lot of issues. And I, so, um, and I came into it and I felt like that in some ways the network had lost its way a little bit. And I think, I think they were victim to the success and departure of Dave Chappelle was a lot of it. I think that, I don't know this, but my sense was that they were, put they they were in a position of having to chase the ghost of Dave Chappelle in some ways and um and that puts a lot of pressure on people and it makes you myopic in what you're looking for and i think that that hurt them in certain ways so when i first came in uh you know look these weren't like people's internal rumblings i'm big on communicating and so when we would have development meetings I put it on the table like, okay, there's some people in here I know and some I don't and we don't know each other. And so now let's work together. I don't have an agenda to fire anyone. I I don't believe in that cleaning house. I don't believe in new person comes in. Okay. Every project that's been in development is dead to me. You know, the first thing that I was involved with picking up was workaholics. I didn't develop it. But when I first started, Doug and Michelle showed me five or six pilots and that was the one I thought, okay, this one has a lot of merit and that's how they felt too. Um, I wasn't going to be like, well, I didn't develop that. I'm not going to do that. I don't believe in that. But so, in your mind, you're aware that many people in the business do. That. Yes. It's very common for that to happen. Very common. And so that was something I was trying to communicate internally and externally to agents and managers, you know, Hey, you, you have projects in development. The greatest thing for me would be if they're really good. You know, I don't care whether my predecessor developed them or not. And so, and then we also talked a lot about what are, what is the job of a development executive, just philosophically and in sort of nuts and bolts. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't believe, you know, I said, if you think your job is to tell anyone how to do something, you're, you're, you're wrong and you've lost. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of cliche about, you know, suits and creatives and all that. And I think a lot of that is bullshit. And some of it comes about because there are a lot of people who have those jobs that give it a bad name and they are kind of overbearing. And, but ultimately I feel like our job is to, uh, identify smart, talented people and make bets on them and then empower them and do whatever we can to help them actualize their vision. And, you know, I think that, um, in some ways just shaking things up a little bit and working in a different way really helped, you know, uh, in any number of ways helped get a lot more creative juice going in there. And, you know, I would get calls, I I would buy a project and an agent would call, Oh, I heard about that thing you got. Are you guys open to ensemble comedies now? And I thought, yeah, why wouldn't we be? Oh, we were only bringing single, you know, and again, that Chappelle thing. And so I think, um, you know, the good news is that, um, they, you know, Doug and Michelle and everyone have been great about empowering me to kind of develop and do what I want to be doing. And, and we've been lucky the stuff we've been putting on the air, you know, so far has been resonating for people. Lucky. <laughs> You're not lucky. Hey, got me this podcast. <laughs> That's luck. Uh, it is, uh, maybe a luck. I doubt it.
Uh, all right, so we're going to ride off in the sunset here. I'm going to a little word association. You tell me a little story about how something happened, what went down, and let's start with some of the Comedy Central things and something that might mean something to the audience. Inside Amy Schumer. Uh, so uh, when I first came back to the network, uh, you know, I'd spent whatever it was, almost a decade in the film world, and I stayed in touch with comedy, but not so much stand-up comedy. I really had lost touch. And when I first came back, I started immersing myself. And one of the first people that resonated for me was Amy. And, you know, we had some meetings. And so I was really interested in her, really believed in her. And um, now this is something we talked about before. Again, Will Ferrell says, hey, I want you to be my director. You have no experience really as a feature film director. You meet with Amy Schumer. She does three minutes on a roast. Well, you that was some... really what provided the opportunity not to cut you off. Sorry, but... No, please. Anybody should. Um, I have listened to a few of your podcasts. <laughs> that surprises me. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so Amy, we had done a special with her. You know, again, we do have this pipeline where, you know, people will be on five minutes on, you know, a show that has a bunch of comics and then they'll work. But that's not acting and carrying your own show. No, true. Uh, And you saw the vision. uh, And then Amy also had done, you know, her uh, been a half hour and then worked her way up. When when the Charlie Sheen roast came around, uh, Jonas Larson and I talked to... Uh, Charlie and his manager at the time, Mark Berg, about putting Amy on. And they were like, nah, they, you know, they, they didn't know her. And they were very resistant at first. And finally, I just forced the issue. And I said, look, this is when you're going to have to trust me on. I guarantee you she's going to kill. So I really, you know, kind of put it out on the line. But also, I had no doubts. I didn't feel I was risking anything. I knew she would. And she killed, she hit so hard that that was when Charlie was putting his 1090 show together and they went immediately to Amy and asked her if she wanted to be in it. That's <laughs> how well that went. But also people don't realize Amy w- was a trained actor too before That's she right. started doing stand-up. Absolutely. And, and I had also seen her. She had done some stuff. I think it was for like the Comedy Central affiliate group or something doing some people on the street interviews. And, and that stuff looks easy, but it is hard. And she was so good and so quick and so funny and made people funny that, you know, ultimately when she first started developing something, we were thinking about a almost a hybrid talk show. And then at a certain point we said, well, what do you want to do? And this is what she wanted to do. So it was easy to sort of back it. Drunk history. Uh, Drunk history, you know, existed on uh, Funny or Die as shorts. Uh, They came in and pitched. And, you know, they were just very articulate about how they could expand it into a a bona fide half hour show. And we did a pilot. It really worked. And uh, the rest is inebriated history. It's doing great now in second season. I love the billboards in Los Angeles. You got the The billboards that are like this. You know, it's like, you know, you're looking at 10 fingers. How many fingers do I have up? And it's like this. It's, It's incredible. Yeah, it's such a simple image i think the creative group so in great. new york For those did a great haven't job seen it, it it's a picture of george washington but it looks like it's i don't know what it's you blurred can... yeah so it, it it's just slightly out of focus and it just looks like how a drunk person might see it the kroll show uh nick kroll is uh also had been doing shorts i knew him for a, a while i knew him as a stand-up i knew him socially uh he had been doing some of his characters um 
you know, Bobby Bottle Service and Rich Dicks uh, as internet shorts. And um, originally we were developing Rich Dicks and uh, to be like maybe a 15 minute show. And I loved that, but I just thought he has so much more. And so we basically went to him and said, you know, let's expand it to a half hour show, a sketch show and for it to be Rich Dicks just to be a part of it. Key and Peel. Uh, Key and Peel, uh, Jim Sharp and Gary Mann brought them in, uh, some of my colleagues, and they had met each other. I guess they met each other previously, but worked together on Mad TV. And they were in a phase of just, they had an opportunity to go to Fox to develop something, but we really believed in them and made the case of, you know, turn down the network money, come here where we're going to get you on the air. And there was an interesting development process. It started, it really evolved a lot as it went. They originally pitched a thing called key versus peel and they would take two different sides of an argument. And then there was another, there were a few different versions that, but it ultimately kind of led to what the show is. And for those of you who don't know this about, you talk about opportunities lost and turning around and becoming great opportunities. Um, Jordan Peel uh, was on mad TV. Okay. He had four episodes left. Four. That's it. They were canceled. Four. He tested for Saturday Night Live. He got the show. He went to Mad TV, said, listen, I got SNL. Can you let me just do bits and pieces in the show with you, whatever? They said, no, you're under contract. You will not leave Mad TV. He lost SNL. Mad TV ended at four shows. The most devastating thing ever. But, you know, again, perseverance. He went forward, developed another show. Also, his partner, uh, Key, was on Gary Unmarried that got canceled. A sitcom that was making good money got canceled, also at a low point, and then got together and uh, a success story. Talk about the new shows, Broad City and Review. Um, Broad City started as a uh, internet shorts, Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer doing uh, part of the UCB world. Uh, they actually pitched the show originally uh, to us with Amy Poehler as the executive producer. Amy had sort of come on board. She had done, uh, uh, you know, an appearance on, on one of their episodes and she really believed in them. And I go way back with Amy. Upright citizens. That's right. Relationships. And, um, so, um, actually they, they ended up selling it to FX and they developed it originally there. FX decided not to move forward. And I was happy to get the opportunity to get it back or whatever, to have the chance to work with them. We redeveloped the pilot script, shot it, and here we are. And it's been amazing how quickly it's just catalyzed with, with the audience and the press and everything. And those girls are super talented. Uh, talk about At Midnight, because At Midnight was a show, for those of you who don't know, was a show where there was a, a host that isn't the host that is the host of the show now, right? I'm not sure what you meant by that question exactly, but... I'm going to answer it anyway. Um, <laughs> at midnight, that was another interesting development process. Maybe this is what you meant. So there were, there were, we had two different projects in development. One was called Tweeter Dome, and it was created by uh, Tom Lennon and Ben Grant That's and correct. Funny or Die. And Tom, who never wanted to be the host of the show, but for the sake of the pilot, said, "I'll do the pilot, but I won't be really available for the show." So we did we did that pilot. Then we, we simultaneously were we were developing another pilot called Hardwired with Chris Hardwick, 
which was also trying to utilize social media and all that. And there were certain things that worked and didn't work about both of them. And we realized that if we expand this Twitter dome idea out to not just be about Twitter, but to be about Instagram and, you know, Reddit and all kinds of social media and, but Chris Hardwick is, you know, Nerdist Empire and the perfect person to really come in and, and, and front this show. We said, Hey, let's explore this about merging these two things together into one thing. And that became at midnight. Awesome. Final round up here. Tell me your greatest holy shit story that happened to you in your career, something that no one would believe happened? Um, I would say that uh, my greatest stories can't be told on a podcast. Okay. Um, but let me think. <laughs> uh, greatest, holy... Well, I'll go way back. When I first started uh, in New York and I was in that design firm, we did you know a lot of, fair amount of... of uh, movie marketing and one sheets. And there was a film called the freshman, which with Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick, it was shooting up in Toronto and, uh, our West coast office was doing all the work, but something happened. I think the art director got sick or something. He couldn't make it to the photo shoot. And it was, uh, uh, Greg Gorman with big Hollywood photographer was the photographer. And so they sent me up to kind of fill in for him and I was really disconnected from the process. And um, so I was, you know, Marlon Brando, need I say more? And, and I know, I've always been someone who sort of treats people, whether they work below me, sideways, above me, whether they're famous, not just as people. I think, you know, uh, that's the, I feel like the thing that unites us all is we're all humans with insecurities and what makes us unique is that we express them in different ways. Uh, so I've always been good about not being intimidated. I might be intimidated by a situation, but not by people so much, but I really psyched myself out with Marlon Brando. And, uh, I just, in the couple of days before I started like rewatching all his old films and I like, <laughs> it got so big in my head. So I flew up to Toronto the day before the shoot. I was so buzzed and nervous. I couldn't fall asleep. I laid in my hotel room bed and never came close to falling asleep. Went to set the next day. We have, we start the day, everyone's meeting each other. And right before we came, he had just done an interview with a reporter in a, for the, one of the Toronto newspapers, just throw, detonating a bomb on this movie about how the people, the director and producer, I think were racist and this, I don't know, some kind of controversy going on. It could not have been more tense. And we get in this circle around him and they start showing him the comps that we were going to shoot the photography for. And it was a bunch of people, the producer, the director, him, Matthew, me, publicist from Columbia film studio. Anyway, there were so many people and he looks at it and he goes, who, who's, who's responsible <laughs> for this? Who's in charge of this? And I thought, well, I'm the underling here. I'm not going to say anything, but no one said anything. So I stepped forward and I said, uh, well, I'm not in charge of it, but I'm with the design firm. We came up with these concepts and here, you know, and he starts asking me questions. Well, what was the intention with this one? And so I started having to answer his questions and he goes, okay. And then we had uh, a photo session 
And the only person that he showed any respect to was me. And I realized he was just testing everyone. Who's going to step up here? And uh, so we have this photo session, which was still pretty tense. And then he went back to shooting, and we finished other stuff we were doing. And when I was leaving, I was just walking out, and I kind of glanced over where they were shooting. And he looks at me, and he, go, he, he you know, motions me to come over. And I, I come over there, and he goes, I just want to thank you. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I want to thank you. And uh, he said, I'm just sorry I couldn't have been more help to you. And I go, you did fine. <laughs> so that was a pretty good holy shit moment for me. That's awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business besides this interview. <laughs> this is my greatest triumph and my greatest disappointment at the same time. <laughs> There's literally tens of people in this room <laughs> because Andy Samberg and all the cast and the creators hey, of Brooklyn still about 99. 50 or 60 people. <laughs> this isn't bad. This is, what, this is what makes Barry Katz such a great manager. I look out here and I see tens of people. He looks out here and he says like 50 thousand people <laughs> in this room um my biggest disappointment uh i don't know if there's one biggest disappointment um you know i think i am a little bit of uh an eternal optimist and as i've mentioned a few times except when it comes to the people in this room yeah uh no i like there's no, a I'm nice warmth the in here <laughs> um the um I was going to say maybe a little bit foolish. I've never, I, I usually uh, am only disappointed when something doesn't work as well as I thought it would. And I would say that that's always the case. Like no matter how well something's working, I feel like, God damn it, it could have been even better. You know, so I think that maybe drives me to keep trying to make it better. Okay, your proudest professional moment. This podcast. <laughs> um <laughs> My proudest professional moment, uh, I guess probably, I don't know, I've had a lot that I feel really good about. I, I would say just the way that my personal and professional life intersected on Semi-Pro, you know, I found out one day apart, they both started, you know, production and delivery of our baby weeks apart. Um, and then being on set and, you know, that's a whole nother podcast of that whole experience was an incredible experience but being on set at the very beginning and just you know being in a position to be able to direct this movie and have my wife and daughter I'll cry now uh, um be there on set you know in my trailer on the brakes and coming out it was amazing I'll never duplicate that incredible wow so the final question is uh, you look out at the people here and, and some of these people are young performers. Some of them are young executives and out listening all over the world who some of them are have really humble beginnings. Some of them are living in a studio apartment, which is Maranzio Vance would say is one room away from being homeless. Um, and you're trying to make your way and there's a lot of obstacles in your way to get to the point where you are today what advice would you have for the performer as well as the executive to get to the next level and overcome and persevere to where you are? 
Um, well, you know, I don't know if I'm anything to aspire to. I feel like I'm a reflection of someone who never had a career plan. I, I, and I think what worked, what has worked for me is just being open, like driven and ambitious and working hard and all the rest. But, uh, you know, I also feel like I'm just, uh, and maybe I'm motivated by this, feel like I've never achieved my potential. Um, and, you know, and that's part of what never had a career path, just one opportunity leads to the next. So I guess my advice in some ways is not different for the artist, you know, or the executive. Um, I think that, uh, you know, of course, the more you can focus yourself, the better, but ultimately, I think the no experience is invalid, and every experience leads to the next one. And I think just remaining open, and I and, and true to yourself, it sounds very cliche, but I think that there's very few things that cannot be taken away from a, another human, uh, and one of them is your identity and your point of view. And I think that whether it's someone who wants to be a, a development executive or a comedian or an actor or a writer or whatever the most the the most potent thing you have is your point of view hopefully it's it's worthwhile and and it's going to be of interest to other people but i would tell people never tell other people what you think they want to hear you really got to tell them what you believe because no one does know anything as the goldman book was you know no one knows nothing it's absolutely true everything is subjective and there's so many different factors that go into things working or not working that your your currency is your point of view. Absolutely. Well, Kent Alterman, this was very inspirational. It was an honor to have you here today, and I'm very, very grateful you came. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. And as always, this is Barry Katz for Industry Standard. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, blame tell Kent all- Alterman. <laughs> They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.